Before our sermon this evening, I turn to begin with to 1 John chapter 5. So the first letter of John in chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first five verses here. But as usual with these topical sermons here in the evening, I'll be uh, quoting many, many other scriptures. And here we read God's holy word, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This was inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to John as he wrote this general letter to Christians toward the end of his earthly life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The infallible, the inerrant word of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's again briefly pray. Lord, we do pray now that indeed you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of this word, so that the words of my mouth this evening and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, for we pray In the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we continue to consider these uh, basics of what Presbyterians believe by uh, looking at the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, we come to the chapter on saving faith this evening. Uh, The Confession has already talked about faith as that instrument which is the gift of of God to all of his chosen, all of his elect people, uh, through which he then uh, works to bring salvation, so that justification is by God's grace alone, free gift alone, working through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so faith is uh, the instrument whereby we uh, are attached to Christ, as it were, and thus receive the blessings of that attachment, the blessings of being identified with Christ. We, indeed, uh, consistently in the New Testament, uh, we're, when we're told that we are to believe in Jesus Christ, the preposition that's used is not the, the straightforward in, which is en in Greek, but it's the preposition ace in Greek, which usually means into. So we believe into Christ. Uh, we are actually uh, placed in him and identified with him and he with us through our faith. The Confession has talked about that sanctification that gives evidence that we have saving faith. But what exactly is saving faith then? How how do we get it? Uh, How do we define it? We know that we get it, of course, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll get into that here uh, briefly as well. The Confession 
so further expands in this chapter then on that faith that it has already talked about. And it begins by saying this, the grace of faith, and I think that's, that's important, those first words of this chapter are the grace of faith, so they're understanding that faith is a free gift from God. It's not something that we have generated from within ourselves, but it's a gift of God itself. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe in this, to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Saving faith is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, as he's also called. So my faith is not an inherent characteristic of my being. It was not something that I decided to have or get. It wasn't something that I just worked up from within myself. And if only I would have faith, then I could be saved. And so I generated it and I used that faith to, to be saved. Well, that would mean that, that faith itself was a work of mine. But no, rather the Holy Spirit sovereignly placed that faith in my heart, which he had changed and brought me to new life. And by that faith, then I was attached to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one speaking in, in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So obviously Paul is not talking about merely reciting some words. Anybody could read on a page out loud, Jesus is Lord, without meaning it. But as we saw a while back in our consideration of 1 Corinthians, uh, we know that this means confessing Christ and meaning it. That we actually believe in Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord uh, and all of the implications that go with that, knowing that he is God himself in the flesh, and mean it apart from the Holy Spirit's having worked in his or her heart. In John 3, 5, Jesus says, Truly I say to you again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it takes the work of the Holy Spirit for us to enter the kingdom of God. In John, or rather in Titus 3, 5, we also see God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so it was his decision, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit's work. And we could go on and on with scriptures of that kind, saying that this is the Holy Spirit's work. But in case you're still confused about where faith comes from, in Ephesians 2.8, the Greek grammar makes it clear, and I've quoted this many times, that it's faith. The faith that we have, Paul says, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now once that faith is implanted, as it were, by God in your heart, it will grow. And the primary means of growing that faith, just as the primary means that God used to give you that faith, is the primary means of God's word and then also prayer and the sacraments grow you in that faith. The Holy Spirit uh, must sovereignly and supernaturally bring you to spiritual life or you couldn't exercise that faith. He has to give you that faith, or you couldn't exercise that faith. But 
Uh, he uses means to awaken that life and faith in you. In 1 Corinthians, here in chapter 1, to the right page here, 1 Corinthians 1, we see verses 22 through 24. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So the message of the gospel to the unchanged heart is a stumbling block or foolishness. But then Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. So the implication is the verb, it is, right? There says it is this message is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message itself is Christ to those who believe, whom God gives that belief to. It's the power of God, it's the wisdom of God, it's salvation for those who believe it. The ordinary means then of that salvation and then of growing in it are the preaching of God's word and then also prayer and the sacraments. These are what are known as means of grace. Those things, uh, when we say means of grace, we don't mean that that they automatically confer grace just because you happen to have heard the word preached that you will automatically receive God's grace. But it is God's means of bringing that grace to his elect. So uh, an unbeliever taking communion doesn't do anything but bring more condemnation on the unbeliever. doesn't confer salvation on the unbeliever. So when we say it's a means of grace, we don't mean that it automatically confers salvation. What we mean is that it is what God has used to give his free gift of salvation and growing in the life of faith to those whom he has elected for salvation. Those ordinary means are, of course, the preaching of his word and the prayer and the sacraments. He uses those same means, uh, that same means of the preaching of his word to grow people that he brought brought them to faith through, and also prayer and the sacraments, as the confession says, he uses to grow them in the life of faith. Luke 17, 5, the apostle, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? So we know that our faith is real, but it's imperfect, and we want to have it increased. Right? 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You want to grow up more into that status of being a faithful servant of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of, of the Lord's Supper as a means of displaying the Lord. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So that becomes a way of growing the faith of those who believe. In Matthew 28, uh, Baptizing is integrally linked to discipling. Jesus tells his disciples to go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Go therefore, because all authority belongs to him, that's what the therefore refers to. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Of course, how do you do that except by the word, right? Uh, so we know that uh, the word and the sacrament there are used to grow people in the life of faith. Prayer is also shown in Scripture to be 
integrally linked to our spiritual growth. Think of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So as we have a healthy life of prayer, we also gain peace. The peace of God. Well, next, the confession points out something that is of the greatest import in the church today. It says, By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. So in other words, God's authority is there speaking in the written word. And so those who believe will understand that whatever God says in his word is true. So by this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage therefore containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So by that faith, by saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in God's word. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know that when we read the words of Scripture, we're reading not man's ideas, not even a man's best best effort at remembering and communicating something God truly told him, but God's superintended Scriptures so that the Holy Spirit caused every word on the page to be exactly what he intended it to be, even though it's written in the writing style and vocabulary and from the experience of the human writer. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul thanks God because... Uh, When you received the word of God, he's talking to the Thessalonians here, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. True Christians may wrangle among ourselves over particular meanings and applications of difficult passages, but that wrangling and wrestling comes from a desire to know God and obey him faithfully. I remember some years ago uh, watching a, a uh, panel, a question and answer panel uh, from uh, a, a conference. It was one of the Ligonier Ministry conferences, and uh, John MacArthur was on the panel, and R.C. Sproul was on the panel, and uh, they spoke about the fact that they uh, both felt compelled to their particular position on baptism by the scriptures. So, uh, they both understood from Scripture the, the, the basics of uh, theology or what are called Reformed theology. And like uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they understand that when they use terms like Calvinist or Reformed, that they used those as, as expressions so that people would understand what they were talking about, but they understood it simply to be biblical. right? <clears throat> but Sproul, of course, embraced the baptism of covenant children. And MacArthur only baptizes professing adult believers. So 
Sproul was a Presbyterian, MacArthur is a Baptist. So that, those are different positions. But if they talked about on that panel how if either of them could convince the other that his position on baptism was wrong, they knew that he would change his position. They both accepted the authority of the Bible. They just disagreed on some finer points about what it says about, in this case, baptism. It's one thing to wrestle among believers over the meaning and application of Scripture. But both understanding that whatever the Scripture is telling us, it's true. Getting out what the truth is sometimes can be a little bit difficult because we make errors. We're fallen and we're fallible. But it's quite another thing to deny the authority of Scripture and still claim to be a believer. Sadly, the division in the most mainline denominations today is not between factions that are struggling to be obedient to Scripture, but disagree on its meaning and application. What we see in denominations like my former denomination is that the, the division is between one side which views the Bible as God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, and the other side which openly says it is not. And that's why no other Presbyterian body in this nation or around the world really considered my former denomination to be actually Presbyterian any longer, even though it had Presbyterian in its name. If we believe in Presbyterianism, and more pointedly, if we believe the Bible, well, that should disturb any so-called Presbyterian intensely. By contrast, this confession that we understand here is is foundational to all Presbyterian churches in the English-speaking world, states that when we read Scripture knowing it is God's Word, it will make us act differently if we're true believers. We'll want to obey it. Psalm 119 is the, the longest psalm. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And what's it about? It's about love of God's written word and how mind, heart, and life changing that written word is. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we saw that also in 1 John 5 this evening. We fear displeasing our beloved Savior by disobeying his word. In Ezra 9, 4, when the people heard the preaching of God's word, and they realized that they had offended God, they trembled. In Isaiah 66, 2, the Lord says, It is the one to whom I will look, or this is the one to whom I will look. Look, who, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God's word affects a true believer. We embrace his promises. 1 Timothy 4, 8. While bodily training or while physical training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. Above all, we lay hold of Christ alone by faith alone for our justification, for our sanctification, for our eternal life, as the confession rightly says there. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Now, all this does not mean that each of us who is saved displays as much faith as the next one. We all have imperfect faith, and so some of us have matured in that faith more than others. Some have a greater amount, as it were, of faith, if you want to think of it in quantity. But as the confession says, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both author and finisher of our faith. Our faith can be little or great compared to another. It can be tested. It can seem to be dampened for a while. It can temporarily seem to fold under the weight of our worldly concerns, but if it's true saving faith, it won't disappear. Think of when Peter denied Christ. His faith, as it were, folded under the pressure there, that social pressure. He didn't want to be considered a disciple of Jesus because of what that would mean at that moment. But he had great remorse over it. A true saving faith always overcomes. And as we saw in 1 John 4 and 5 this evening, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that faith that we have overcomes the world. He who, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John asks. That overcoming gives the individual an assurance that the faith that you have is genuine. Now, One last thing about saving faith. You'll have noticed that John spoke in terms of a propositional truth. Saving faith believes that Jesus is the Son of God. True faith is not wishing something were true and believing despite contrary evidence. That's how the world likes to define faith. That's a That would just be credulity or just plain silliness. right? I'm going to believe something despite the evidence that I see. It's uh, rather like the child who covers his eyes and thinks he can't be seen, right? (laughs) I don't want that to be true, so I won't look at it. I'll believe something else. But no, saving faith knows the information of the gospel, believes the evidence that it's true, and then trusts totally in Jesus. Now, those are the three elements that the Protestant reformers said that saving faith has. There's there's the information, the notitia in the Latin, they call it. So the, the, knowing the information, what the gospel actually is, what it says. Then there was the assensus, that's the agreeing that it's true. So you see the evidence and agree it's true. And then there was fiducia, trust. So as, uh, as I heard one illustration, a, a, a translator was working in a remote part of the world and he had a local man who knew the language and he was... He was working with him trying to translate the scriptures into the local language and they were trying to find the right word to translate faith from scripture. And the the man was, the missionary was pacing up and down the room and he, in exasperation, leaned on the back of a chair and then he, the light bulb came on, right? And he, and he said, asked the man, what did I just do when I leaned on the back of that chair? 
So faith involves understanding, if we're taking, talking about faith in a chair, right? It would be understanding what a chair is, well, that object over there is a chair, and then actually sitting on it, trusting it to be a chair. I have to know what the gospel says about Jesus. I have to agree that it's true, and then lean totally on Jesus. That's what saving faith is. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and or the author and finisher, or the founder and perfecter, some translations say, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The world will give you a definition of faith that says it's a leap in the dark, that says it's just a trusting something apart from evidence, like the character in The Miracle on 34th Street who said, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. Well, that's not what biblical saving faith is. I think it's silly to believe in Jesus, but I believe anyway. No. Faith, our culture might say, is irrational, but true faith is actually the most rational of all things. Think of Abraham. It's, it's not... You know, Mark Twain saying, believing something when you know it ain't so. That's, that's not biblical faith. Rather, it's, it's believing God because you know he can be trusted. As we referred in this morning's sermon to Genesis 15, where uh, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, to, to paraphrase Abraham, I know you think you're too old for this, but you're going to have a son. And that son, through that son, you will be the father of many nations. Look at the stars in the sky. Count them if you can. That's what your descendants will be like, Abraham. And Abraham believed God. It didn't seem rational, perhaps, according to the world's way of thinking, but that was the most rational thing that Abraham could do. How foolish would it be to say, no, God, you don't know what you're talking about. To think that the creator of the universe doesn't know what he's talking about or can't accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish, that's irrational. There's nothing more rational than believing that when God says something is true, that makes it true. That when God says he will accomplish something, that he will accomplish it. And true biblical saving faith is that. It's belief that when God says something, it makes it so that when God has declared himself in Jesus Christ, that you know you can trust Jesus Christ. And you have the evidence placed before you that he died, that he rose again from the dead, and so that means everything else he said about God and about who he is and about what he was accomplishing is true. So there's nothing more rational than to believe that, nothing more reasonable than to trust that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that you can trust in him. So put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe the information of the gospel. Agree that it's true and trust, lean upon Jesus. And indeed, you are saved. Well, let's pray. Well, faithful God, we do trust you and we know you and we believe Jesus is Lord. So by your spirit, we ask that you would help our unbelief, that you would grow us to maturity of faith, that we may know you fully through Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.